I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. I thought we'd start by just talking about when we first met. My recollection is that I came over to Canada to help facilitate a cabinet retreat shortly after Justin Trudeau had been elected. And it was a tremendous event. And then during the retreat, you and I interacted and you were new to politics, new to government, new as a minister, uh, still only, I hesitate to put an age on it, but around the age of 30 with a huge challenge ahead of you. Is that your recollection as well? How did you feel about all that extraordinary time in your life? Hello from Peterborough. And it's so nice to be talking to you again. And going down that memory lane. Yeah, it was January 2016. Shortly after I'd been elected that fall and had been appointed to Prime Minister Trudeau's cabinet, there had been a hate crime committed in Peterborough against the masjid, or colloquially known as the local mosque, uh, an act of arson. And, you know, the community, instead of dividing and putting up fences, came together and across faiths, uh, indigenous leaders, the uh, Jewish community, the United Church, folks came together and said to the Muslims that you're not alone, we'll watch when you're praying, and you're welcome to come pray in our places of worship. And I used to sit behind the prime minister in the House of Commons, and I remember one day I said, hey, prime minister, that masjid is going to be reopening. Uh, would you be interested in coming by for a visit? And he looked at me, pursed his lips, nodded, and said, yes, let's make that work. And then he showed up. And with him on that flight to the Peterborough Airport was a Sir Michael Barber. And we'd go into that cabinet retreat after the prime minister's visit here in Peterborough. And I would continue to uh, go down the, the path of learning, governing and growing up around the cabinet table. It's an amazing moment for a relatively young person in, in politics. But let's go back to before that, because you came to Canada from Afghanistan, I think when you were a young teenager. Do you want to describe what it was like discovering Canada? Hmm. So I was born an Afghan refugee to Afghan parents on Iranian soil. My mom was getting a full scholarship to study medicine anywhere in the world. And then the war breaks out. And of course, she's not going abroad. And she meets Prince Charming and they get married. And they have three girls. And in their fourth year together, he's killed between the border of Iran and Afghanistan. And she's left a 24-year-old widow with three little girls, the oldest one three, and the youngest one 10 months old. So, you know, she tries to make it work. Uh, if you're a refugee without a male head of household, and, you know, you're reliant on your family and the kindness of strangers, you don't really see the kind of dignified life you dreamed up happening for you. Uh, my mom was seeing very few opportunities for us girls. She'd probably have to marry us off early so that financially 
her situation would be sustainable. And then she makes this big decision, takes this really big risk and gives my sisters and me the biggest break we ever got, which is bring us to Canada. I come here and I'm 11. And in May 1996, we arrived in Peterborough. That must have been a massive cultural shock or change. I mean, 11 year old girl, you, you would remember that well. What was it like at the beginning? Oh, yes. Uh, so the early part of my life was, you know, life between borders and not knowing what would really become of us. And then coming to Canada, it was life between cultures. We came here and we didn't really speak the language. Uh, we didn't, we had some family here, but, you know, they were down their own integration journey and they helped a lot. You know, I didn't look like the rest of the kids in this, you know, southern Ontario small town. And, you know, for a bit there, the kids gave me a hard time. But overwhelmingly what happened in those early days, uh, and I'd say for every single day since, the people in this community wrapped their arms around my family and I like we were their own. You know, we stayed at the YWCA Women's Shelter. We stayed at Casa Maria Refugee Homes with Sisters of St. Joseph. Um, I miss Sister Ruth every day. We were able to, you know, around Christmas time, go into people's homes and they'd invite us for Thanksgiving. And, you know, so we'd feel like we had a family here. They signed us up for school, helped us with the language. I was like 12 and I get a job delivering papers and suddenly I'm making my own money. So, you know, life was hard in so many ways, as is the case in the immigration journey anywhere. But the people of this community really took care of us, which is ultimately why I decided to run for politics. So you've arrived in Canada, you've got into school, you've got your job delivering papers. How did you progress from school getting into politics in your 20s? I struggled a lot. There are certain fundamental challenges that are over and done with the moment you're on Canadian soil and you have, you know, gone through the citizenship process and then you have peace of mind that you're here in Canada, you're home, you're safe, the country of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you can have an education. But, you know, as is the case with so many refugees and immigrants, there is then intergenerational trauma to deal with, feelings of belonging and overall purpose and, you know, the usual teenage angst. So I, I struggled as a youth. I was what you would now call an at-risk youth. Uh, and I had a lot of bumps along the way in school. When I struggled, though, I had people around me who I could call upon, caring adults from teachers to mentors to eventually employers. And they taught me, kind of like my grandpa did, that if you're struggling with something, chances are you're not alone. And I learned early on in life that if the people around me were doing okay, I was doing okay. If I was struggling with, you know, my stress levels at Trent University and I tried to call the counseling center to make an appointment, they told me it'd be weeks before I could see a counselor. I, I freaked out. In three weeks, I'll either figure the problem out on my own or stuff will hit the fan and it's too much. So I wrote a strongly worded email to the vice president of student experiences at that time. 
she forwarded my email to the head of counseling. And eventually I ended up helping to start up a mental health advocacy group at Trent. And when I was struggling about helping folks back home in Afghanistan and, you know, I couldn't go back because it wasn't safe. Folks around me taught me that from right here in Peterborough, why don't you sell scarves and, you know, we'll try it out with the student group at Trent. And if it works, that's your way of making a difference. So I struggled, but I also had people around me to, to kind of channel my frustration and anger into something productive. Yes, that's amazing. And and tell me about through that teenage and into young adulthood, tell me about your faith. Was that an asset? Were you able to to make the bridge between your faith and your experience and the new life you had in Canada? I'm a woman of faith. My faith has always played an important part in my life. I learned about Islam through my grandfather. He would sit us down and tell us stories from the Quran. And he would, you know, go through each story, uh, tell it to us in the best way that a storyteller could. And then he would help us analyze the story. And he'd say, what's the moral of this story? And that's how we grew up learning about Islam. So coming to Canada, the the faith of an individual is not a big part of day-to-day living. Uh, And up until 9-11, I didn't really feel like I was different, you know? I had come to a country where you worship as you want to, and people who worship differently than you will go out of their way to help you, to be kind to you. And that's kind of the experience that that I imagined I'd, I'd have growing up amongst people of faith. But then 9-11 happened. And suddenly, being an Afghan girl, young woman, was suddenly synonymous with someone to be pitied, a victim. The only thing the world seemed to know about us was, you know, we were the women behind the burqas and we were, you know, victims who were oppressed. You know, the post 9-11 hate and racism and stereotypes that just took on a life of their own, well, they affected folks like me, you know, everywhere in Canada and certainly around the world, the, the world changed and suddenly it was bad to be one of us. And I remember being a very confused teenager and being ashamed of who I was. And that certainly played a big part. Would people want to go into business with me if they knew that I was an Afghan? Would people still want to be my friend if, you know, they associated me wrongfully with terrorists? So I certainly went through and we continue to feel the reverberations of, you know, the hate that really took a life of its own after 9-11. But being in university, I started to talk to folks, particularly Indigenous folks met some really cool people. And then over time, I'd meet some of the most badass people I know across the country who are Muslims. They're doctors and engineers and entrepreneurs and philanthropists. And the more I see of that, the more I continue to be proud. You became a Canadian as well as an Afghan, as well as a Muslim. At what point did you begin to identify with Canada? That must have been an important moment for you or important phase for you, given that you later on ended up being a cabinet minister in Canada. How did you get to identify with Canada? Well, milestone by milestone is how I would say arriving here and breathing that sigh of relief. Uh, you know, the the first nice day in Peterborough that May and just 
feeling like this is home. The first apartment we got through the YWCA where, you know, my sisters and I, we shared a room, but it was ours. Getting our citizenship, uh, going to post-secondary, being able to vote. Like these were all milestones. And then, yeah, to be sworn into the federal cabinet. Certainly there were those when I was running uh, and I spoke to about 150 people before I decided to run. I ran municipally first. This is a good idea. Am I bananas for wanting to do this? I was 29 at the time. And most people said, go for it, right? We got your back. You're exactly what our community needs. We'll raise funds for you. We'll volunteer for you. You got this. But then there were those who were like, ah, shouldn't you get a little more education? Shouldn't you start at a lower position first? Where are you going to get the money? How are you going to walk into that room and earn the respect of all those men? You're going to knock on people's doors and they're going to be really nice to you to your face. But as you're leaving, they're going to say, she's nice, but she's a Muslim. Now, those voices, as you can appreciate, swirled and took a life of their own in my thoughts and changed my mind about running four times. Ultimately, like who am I? What woman in my lineage could have dreamed of the kind of opportunity I've been given around the federal table in Canada, especially during COVID, to give back to a community who gave us everything we have to appreciate and benefit from? How does a story like that happen anyway? So at some point, you step-by-step identified as a Canadian. Then you wanted to run for office. How did you become a liberal with a big L for the Canadian Liberal Party, which was led, I'm not sure at which point in your life, Justin Trudeau became leader of the Liberal Party, but but he, he became leader in a, a quite spectacular win. But at that point, nobody thought he was going to win a majority in 2015. Because I know he and his team, before they won the election, they had a big campaign to bring more women into Parliament called Ask Her to Run. Was that something influential for you or were you already engaged in politics? I wasn't a partisan anything at that time. I had helped with an NDP campaign. I'd helped with liberal elections. I'd helped with municipal elections. It was always about the candidate. But I ended up choosing to be a liberal for a number of reasons. First of all, locally. The local liberals came to me and said, like, we're ready to fight a good election. You know, you're, you'll feel welcomed amidst us. We will do everything we can. Let's do this. Um, so they had the funds. They had the volunteers. And then it was about who's the leader I relate to the most and who's the team around this leader. And then, of course, it was Justin Trudeau and his team and I ran in uh, for the nomination in May of 2015, uh, and I won it by a hair. And in that process, before you ran, were you directly in touch with Trudeau and Jerry Butts and Katie Telford in his office, or, or uh, was it just in direct contact with them? Different parties were uh, in touch, but... I never would have dreamed, like even on election night, Sir Michael, even on election night, it was like 10, 26 p.m. and the results had come in and it was this big red liberal wave and it still hasn't sunk in for me that I won and that we had won a majority. It was a spectacular election victory. In my book, Accomplishment, which these accomplishment podcasts are based on, there's a conversation with Justin Trudeau reported there where he says, 
When I decided to run to be leader of the Liberal Party, I didn't ask myself, what do I have to do to win the leadership of the Liberal Party? I asked myself, how do I, need to ch how do I want to change Canada? And if I won, would we be able to do that? It was a pretty inspiring time for Canada because the leader was very charismatic, very bold in the policies he'd set out. And then, as you say, I think many of you were surprised by the scale of the victory uh, on that election. Did you feel that sense of excitement during the campaign in Peterborough? Oh, yes. My campaign was amongst the longest in modern Canadian history. Uh, there was a by-election, and so it became several months. But it started to pick up momentum, I think it was around July. I had the best team ever anybody could ask for in politics, and they showed up from all walks of life. And there was a lot at stake, you know. Yeah. It, the common phrase I heard after we had won that election, the, the most commonly used phrase was, it's as if a dark cloud has lifted. And, like, I heard this from enough people, right? Why? Well, for 10 years, there wasn't real investment in science. You know, we were muzzling scientists. The, the snitch line for your neighbors was causing all sorts of hateful and, you know, distorted behaviors uh, and rhetoric possible. There, there was to be different classes of Canadians. Uh, the Syrian refugee, the body of that little boy washing up on that shore reminded yeah, folks yes. that Canada had turned its way when it mattered from its responsibilities in the world. And then there were people like me, right, uh, who were frustrated that, you know, people were making decisions on our behalf who didn't know what it was like to ride the bus, who didn't know what it was like to be poor, who didn't know what it was like to go to a grocery store, swipe your card and not know if it's going to be approved or not. And that's fine on its own. But if these folks will not listen to our experiences, then what are they doing making decisions on our behalf? Yeah. So, you know, there was there was jubilation and relief and high expectations. Coming back to the beginning of the conversation. So I turned up at that um, January for the cabinet retreat. And I can remember the sense of excitement, motivation, possibility, the sense of an absolutely committed, passionate team devoted to their leader, Justin Trudeau, but more importantly, to the agenda that you'd set, which you've just described some elements of. I was quite literally close to tears just by the sheer emotion and power of this group of people and their enthusiasm for changing Canada for the better. And you became a minister. There you were, you're newly elected to parliament, you're 30-ish 30, 30 years old, and suddenly you're in the Canadian cabinet. And your first role, I think, was to do with the constitutional change that had been promised. But to describe that for the listeners. So I win the election. And the first year is a trial by fire every day. And the Prime Minister asks me to be his minister for democratic institutions, and we make some big changes, like uh, change the way the Senate was appointed. Uh, on day 29, yes. I made that announcement. So I was just hitting the ground running, and then it was falling a lot, Sir Michael. It was falling and getting back up, trial by fire, and, you know, a lot of hard-won lessons and, you know, some personal challenges, a whole birther saga, a cross-country tour, visiting every province and territory in this magnificent country in rural and urban communities, 
talking to folks about how do we increase voter turnout and engagement? Do we do it by changing the way we vote? And, you know, ultimately uh, having, you know, probably everything that could have gone wrong went wrong in that first year. Did you learn the lesson that I've heard many politicians talk about of the difference between running for election and then running a country? Oh, governing is a whole other ballgame. The election's the easy part. I mean, elections are hard. Elections are brutal. They are unpredictable. There's very little that you control but governing a place like Canada, um, and especially in the transformative times we live in, that's a whole other ballgame. What did you learn in that first pretty intense year about about governing? What If you were let's supposing a cabinet minister somewhere else in the world came to you and said, I've just been elected and, and chosen for a cabinet. On the basis of your first year, Mariam, what would you advise me? What two or three key lessons? Oh, I would probably write a book about what to do and what not <laughs> to do. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you should. Here's what I would say. First of all, set the table. Uh, your life's about to turn upside down. So make sure you have a strong base and a foundation and the right self-care and your sharp uh, and, you know, certain about yourself and why you're there in the first place. Your why is going to carry you through the hardest of the days, especially very, when, very important. Especially when you know, events happen and then suddenly you got to focus elsewhere. So that's one. Set the table. Two, trust your instincts. You don't know everything going into that place. There's, like I said, no handbook for how to be a really good cabinet minister. But if you trust your instincts, have confidence in what you've gone into that place with, and have the humility to know what you don't know, you will be right. surrounded by people who are more than happy to help you. And then the third part is your team is everything. Your team is everything. And anything I did right in my political experience, in my political journey, it's been because of the really smart, really thoughtful, really kind people I had the fortune of bringing around me. When you talk about the people around you, are you talking about the other cabinet ministers? Are you talking about Trudeau and his team? Are you talking about your own chief of staff or your top officials? Who, who's the team you're referring to? Certainly the big team, the big liberal you know, party team is... That's the machine. That's the banner you're running under. It's a yeah. team sport, and it's best if folks look after each other. But the team that sustains you and keeps you going so that you can be your best contributing self to that team, that team makes all the difference. That's your chief yeah. of staff. Those are your directors. It's your right. EA. And actually, I would say often the jobs that I are least you. appreciated, least, frankly, uh, compensated are the most essential. And I think that's a lesson I learned in, in politics. And then we learned it throughout COVID. Suddenly these yeah. jobs that we didn't really respect too much were essential to our survival. We talked about your mother and your sisters earlier on. What were they thinking as their sister took these roles on? Like with everything, there's a honeymoon phase where they're proud. <laughs> and again, like who in our family? There had never been an Afghan Canadian in Canada's parliament ever, not in the Senate, mm. not in the House of Commons, let alone in cabinet. So they were proud of that. There had never been a Muslim around the federal cabinet tables. They were proud Amazing. of that. Peterborough 
had never elected a woman to be their representative in Ottawa, and certainly not for the lack of there being great women. They were proud, but suddenly their lives were, you know, part of the conversation. And I suddenly stopped being there the way that I was for for my niece, for my family, and, you know, that... It's certainly uh, one of my colleagues uh, used to say, your family makes all the sacrifices. So they certainly yeah. do. Justin Trudeau, I mean, he, he has many achievements uh, and many controversies now through his time as prime minister, but he's always been absolutely passionate and committed on equity and diversity, women coming into politics, diverse ethnic origins. You were emblematic of that whole aspect of the Trudeau agenda, did that add a burden to you or was it liberating? How did that feel? I remember, you know, that day where he's asked, you know, where we've been sworn in, he's asked, you know, why 50-50 women? And he says, because it's 2015. And where am I in all of that? I'm in the back of that group shot and I'm going out of my way because I'm an introvert. I'm going out of my way to just mind my own business. I'm freaking out a little bit on my own. I'm standing there with Mark Garneau in the back, avoiding like getting my photo taken because it was a lot, right? I was like hippie, grassroots, activist, suddenly turned politician, suddenly turned cabinet minister. Like it was, it was a lot. It was really fast. It was probably one of the most intense learning curves of my life um, and ultimately what an incredible privilege right and you don't yeah. take that responsibility lightly suddenly little girls come up to you and say oh I have you know hair like yours or you know my mom's a single mom too or I'm Afghan right. too or I came here as a refugee too or I lost my dad when I was little too and suddenly people seeing you, realize that, hey, if she can do it, I can do it too. And so for them, you try to do as good a job as you can. And for all the people who expect you to fail, for all the people who expect you to do a terrible job because they've never seen anybody like you in that place, well, you work really hard to prove them wrong. And sometimes that goes well and sometimes it doesn't. The thing you read about in all the management books about role models, it's really true in that sense. You were a role model, you became a role model to to thousands of young Canadian women to the Afghan community in Canada. If you think about it yourself, though, your years in government, what would you say was your biggest accomplishment from those times, right through not just the first term, but right through the, the years you were in office? However the stars aligned that I ended up in the same room with those folks, I'd say that's a pretty big deal right away. <laughs> I remember geeking out that first day and I'm looking around the table and, you know, the PMs just walked in and we've started the first cabinet meeting and we're bringing back the long form census and, you know, we're making big decisions and I'm looking around and I see Ralph Goodale and I see the PM and I see, you know, all these incredible women that would go on to do some really incredible things. So that was a big deal. But, you know, the Senate appointment process, enabling Canadian expats to vote. Those were big, big accomplishments yes. early on. Uh, but then I just want to explain, Mariam, for people who might listen to this in Britain, the Senate is the equi- Canadian equivalent of the House of Lords. And effectively, you opened that up from a closed process to an open process. For the first time ever, the Senate of Canada is gender balanced. And we've got the most racial 
diversity we've had in that chamber ever. But I'd say the thing I'm most proud of is the lives we saved when COVID came into our shores, came onto our shores and turned our lives upside down. I was the Minister for Women and Rural Economic Development at that time. And very quickly, we set up a process and we ended up being among the first in the world to do this so that, you know, if you're telling people to stay home, and not every home is a safe home. And we know the rates of violence are going to increase for children and women. Well, let's make sure there's safe yeah. places for them to go. And we acted quickly and the PM was right on it. So was the finance minister. And in that first year, about a million women and children in their hour of need had a place to go to. That's amazing. Those moments where lives were saved are probably what I'm most proud of. I was able to build a department for women and gender equality it had existed as an agency before, but now there's a full minister devoted to it. Gender budgeting is enshrined into law, as is the existence of this department. When Mr. Trump became president, uh, the PM appointed me just 10 days before he was sworn in as his women's minister. And, you know, during that time of the global gag rule, Canada stepped up and we were the number one funder for SRHR in the world, the number one funder for... Just spell out, spell out SR, SRHR for, for, the, for the listener. Sexual rights, health rights, reproductive right. rights. Canada was, you know, stepping into yeah. that leadership vacuum and ensuring that funding was in place to keep essential programs going. Canada was number one in funding grassroots women's organizations, which is the most effective way to advance gender equality. Canada was the first in the world in its intersectional gendered response to COVID. We built a national housing strategy with a third of the money building housing for women fleeing violence and abuse. But ultimately, we saved lives. And I was able to be there for my community in their hour of need, like they were there for my family and me. And that was important to me personally. We're coming towards the end of this interview. And that that is an extraordinary set of accomplishments that you just listed there, Mariam, that any anybody I can imagine would be proud of. But you're in politics and politics is a rough trade anywhere in the world. Democratic politics is. And come the last election, Last year, you lost your seat in the riding of Peterborough. After all that run, that incredible set of triumphs, that incredible set of achievements of real changes in women's lives, of saving lives, but also changing many more women's lives for the better, that must have felt terrible. Oh, my goodness. To your listeners, (laughs) losing sucks a lot. (laughs) Try not to lose. But as a candidate... When you're starting out, first, you got to know that you're the best person for the job. Second, you got to have a very clear why. This is why I'm doing this. But third, you have to make peace with the possibility of losing. And the loss that I had this past September was a pretty painful one. The election itself was incredibly painful. And, you know, all the ways that you know, violence against politicians, particularly women politicians, happens on online and offline. Um, aspects of that were directed at me and my campaign. And, you know, I spent 
days being sad and you're catching me at the end of my eat, pray, love, Michael. Right, um, right. Where, you know what? This was a loss and I will spend time recovering from it, but it's hardly the worst loss in my life. No one's died. I've been given resources to recover from this loss. I can look back and see, you know, six years of accomplishment, hard-earned lessons, and fall after fall, I got back up on my feet. And every single day, I met more people who are, you know, devoted to, to the same mission that I am in life. I want to see a world where women and children are thriving. And not only was I able to contribute to that work at a national and international level, but I learned from some of the best in the world. So losing sucks. I've learned a lot. I've slept a lot <laughs> than I have in the, you know, compared to the last seven years, I've been sleeping a lot. And for anybody listening, politics is hard and you got to take big risks and you got to have the humility to lose or win. But when it comes to politics, especially in these times in which we find ourselves, I highly recommend that you do step up because for all the pain and for all the hardship and for all the struggles, it is totally worth it. And I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to represent my community and to learn from the incredible people that I've had in my life. It's a fantastic story. And I, I um, strongly endorse, although I'm obviously at a different stage of life in a different country, the encouragement of people to take up politics because actually democratic politics depends on talented, committed people taking it up. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but my last question is, with all that learning, that amazing accelerated and deepened learning experience that you've had through uh, the, the years in the Trudeau cabinet and the campaign before that and all the rest, do you have a, a plan of how you are going to change the world for the better in future? You're clearly not somebody who's going to leave that alone. No, I'm not. It's, it's why God put me on this earth, right? Women and children thriving. So... I uh, am spending a lot of time on the yoga mat and the prayer mat these days, writing a lot, you know, walking and just being in my thoughts. I'm working locally with the Community Foundation to uh, establish a fund to support other women leaders. Um, and I will, you know, get back on my horse. And at this particular juncture, going back to school uh, in the fall, which should be exciting. But I also need to earn a living again. So I'm in that process of, you know, figuring out, I know what I want to do. I know what I don't want to do. Uh, and what I want to do involves helping high-impact teams achieve better results faster on the issues around equity, diversity, accessibility, inclusion. So I'll keep you in the loop. Uh, and, you know, I'm also spending a lot of time in gratitude. Somebody like me gets to do what I got to do. It's because a lot of things had to go right. As I get the fire in the belly back, the creativity is coming back, and that gratitude certainly helps. I have a feeling you're going to do uh, even more amazing things in the future. But, uh, Mariam, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been very, I'm choosing my words carefully, profound. I've really, really enjoyed it and learned a lot from this dialogue and other conversations I've had with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And thank you for all the time you've taken with me. 
Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to my wonderful guest, Mariam Monsef. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team.